You're listening to Counter Moves, a Christian review of ideas shaping church and culture. On Counter Moves, we interview some of today's most incisive thinkers on the ideas and trends affecting Christian witness in a secular age. Our mission is summed up in the words of Carl F.H. Henry. If the church fails to apply the central truth of Christianity to social problems correctly, someone else will do so incorrectly. Today I'm joined by someone who I've considered uh, a friend and ally from afar, and that is Sarab Amari, who is a senior writer at Commentary and formerly of the Wall Street Journal. And I'm so glad that he could join us on this very first inaugural episode of Counter Moves. Sarab, first off, I just want to say thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Andrew. I'm so honored that you picked me for, for the inaugural. Well, thank you so much. And, and you know, today we want to focus on some of the issues that y- your work has covered over the past few years. And you've looked at issues facing or, or threats facing kind of Western order and liberal democracy. Uh, you have an interest in foreign policy, family stability, and, and the gender revolution, which I've had a, a particular interest in myself, and, and also the issues of human dignity and assisted suicide. And we really want to kind of dial uh, into some of these issues and kind of discuss them and, and see how you would kind of analyze and interpret some of the challenges facing Christians and the church in today's culture. And the very first question I want to ask you about is this notion of something I've written about elsewhere, what I call anthropological heresies. And what I mean by that is I think we're living in a time where this question of what it means to be human is a very live question. And there are alternate proposals being put forth about what it means to be human. And so this is impacting issues uh, regarding abortion and and sanctity of the unborn, uh, gender fluidity, what it means to be a a sexual creature, uh, issues of racism, and family structure. And so I want to discuss this issue with you about the issue of anthropology and discuss and ask you the question, I mean, do you think that we are living in a time where this issue of what it means to be a human is, is one of the, the most live questions facing us in the church. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's a question that's always been with people of faith, with Christians, but it's, it, I agree with you that it's especially pertinent right now and in the atmosphere of the culture. It's bleeding into the church and it's, uh, the church is having to react to new theories of the human person, which are challenging, mm-hmm. I think, to, to all Christians. Let me just start with uh, what I see on, on, in terms of what's developing or percolating in the culture, and, I, and I'll start with an area that I think, uh, well, I know is near and dear to your heart and something that you've been concerned with, because I was looking at your, your book, uh, God and the Transgender Debate, oh, and, and watching some of your excellent um, sermons uh, about that, and it's the idea of where does sex and gender fit into a, a holistic conception of the human being? And mm-hmm. we live in an age where we are told on the one hand that gender is purely a social construct, that there is nothing essentially feminine and masculine, even down to the level of biology, which, by the way, is extremely unscientific. But hmm. anyway, let's just accept that yeah. as a premise for now. Uh, so that's the feminist movement, right? There's nothing fundamentally different between men and women. They seek 
the same thing from sexual encounters. They, um, they, in every avenue of life, there's just the only differences between them are social constructs. That's one view. The other view that's also coming from the identity left, where a lot of these ideas are generated, is that when it comes to transgender people, there is something profoundly female or profoundly male in, in trans people's bodies or uh, maybe in their identities that is very essential and that it defies what their bodily expression of it is. And therefore, uh, and it takes precedence because um, uh, they are uh, trans people or, or all people um, are have this gender identity that precedes the body, mm-hmm. which is uh, Robbie George has said correctly. I think it's a very Gnostic idea. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> um, but those two both can't be true. That, that either gender is purely a social construct or that it's something... Uh, uh, you know, pre, pre-embodied. Mm-hmm. It's only true in a world of kind of bizarro postmodern theory uh, that, they, that those two ideas can be held together. So I just wanted to start with that. Just that yeah. I'm sure you can think of more examples, but our idea of the human person, what's coming from, from the culture is very confused. And I would say not only confused, it's silly, but also sinister and per- pernicious. Yeah, and, and that's exactly right. And I'm reminded of um, Thomas Sowell, the, the political economist. He has a book called The Cosmic Idea of, of Justice, I believe, where he basically says there's two views that people can view reality with, that we, we live in either a constrained understanding of the universe or an unconstrained understanding of the universe. Uh, and so we really – all people have to choose between living – uh, within those two paradigms of whether or not there is a, an objective constrained order that we are, are obligated to live in and find fulfillment in, or do we as individuals with a blank slate just kind of manufacture our own understanding of reality and, and morality is just simply consent-based. And and that leads me to kind of a, a big question attached to kind of the question of anthropological heresies is – um, and I'm sure we could spend the next three hours this with this question in particular, but what factors would you say led us to our current moment where something as you know that was as American and apple pie as saying a boy is someone that is x y is now considered x y chromosomes is now an ideological and contested claim in society. So what in your view, if you were going to boil it down to a few essential truths, what led us to our current moment here? I would say the ultimate animating set of ideas that led to this, a lot of my Catholic friends would just say modernity in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, very traditional, uh, the Enlightenment in general. I, I disagree. I think that what we're dealing with is an outgrowth of 19th century ideas from the likes of Marx mm. and Nietzsche and the way they then bled into and combined uh, in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, where um, uh, and the basic idea is that um, uh, that that um, uh, uh, fundamentally uh, uh, that all ideas about the good, about about right, about um, uh, of the beautiful, in some ways, are products of power relations mm. of of economic factors, and uh, therefore there is nothing essentially good or true or beautiful 
in in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, obviously, in some ways, Marx, Marxism yeah. and, uh, as a sort of account of history suffered a, a big blow. Gradually, people um, left it behind. The Soviet experiment was shown to be this monstrous disaster. So the people who were of that mind eventually switched away from class struggle or economic struggle per se as the fundamental antagonism that defines ideas and from which ideas flow. They switched to race, gender, and sexuality as the main common ground. And they really took hold of the campus. You know, I've been meaning to write an essay. I haven't gotten around to it, but uh, an essay called The World Judith Butler Made. Judith Butler mm-hmm. is a feminist theorist who, whose ideas have been influential since since the uh, 90s, but throughout until now. And uh, she writes in this kind of obscure, impossible prose. <laughs> but she's, she's, you know, one of the originators of this idea of gender as a purely... Uh, constructed thing, mm-hmm. uh, socially constructed fact. And, you know, conservatives, I guess, paid attention to her and the likes of her, but in a sort of mocking way, never took it seriously. Sure. And yet I think that the world that we live in is more a reflection of her, Judith Butler's vision and the likes of her than many conservatives would now be willing to concede. So I, sorry, that was a very long, no, that's good. Uh, but I think that's where we are is, is, um, at the, the root of it is the idea that um, is historicism and relativism, yeah. extreme relativism. Um, every idea, every fact about life is only about power dynamics. Yeah, that's a, that's a great answer. Um, and, and that actually works as a great segue to a theme that you've written about in your book, The New Philistines. And uh, it's the issue of identity politics, which may not be that, – that phrase may not be on – the minds of, of many Christians, but it's something that we should, uh, I think, be very, very familiar with because it's driving so much kind of, of the cultural tumult that we're now living in. I'd be interested to hear from your perspective, you know, how would you define identity politics and why is identity politics a, a threat or, or why is it a challenge to Orthodox Christianity? Well, to define it, I would say identity politics is a loose set of ideas all of which center around a vision of society as purely composed of a set of antagonistic forces, um, collective groups, whether that's women against men, uh, whether that's uh, people of color against, uh, uh, I guess, dominant racial groups uh, in, in Western societies, uh, whether that's uh, people who whose notions of gender and sexuality don't fit in with the mainstream against the mainstream and so forth. Um, but the, the, uh, I think the defining fact about it, what may, I mean, obviously social antagonism, social groups have always existed, but identity politics, first of all, puts a priority extremely on, on, on the battle of collective identities and has a very elaborate sense of how to define who is right in a given situation which they call intersectionality because they say, yes, there is oppression, but that there's a hierarchy of oppressions. So therefore in a given situation, when a, a college professor who herself might identify as a lesbian uh, gets into a conflict with a student who is male and from a, let's say from a North African background, 
which one of the two is right in the situation? Well, you have to realize that the, the North African was a colonial subject. So even though that, the, the other person is a fe- female and lesbian, maybe his North African identity and the history of colonialism overrides her trump cards of yeah. being female and gay. So the point is that um, why is this a threat? Uh, I think the, the way I just described that puts it well in the sense that Christians believe in uh, the idea that every human person is created the image of Almighty God, that that we're all fallen and we all have uh, a capacity for for redemption. Yeah. But in a world that's only seen through these collective identities, first of all, the, it's not real justice. It, it tends to look like revolutionary justice where X classes have to be decapitated, so to speak. Metaphor- it's it's a re- justice in the eye of the beholder at that. Absolutely. Very, very it's, absolutely. So the justice is not real justice. And again, their sense of the human person is, does not, there are certain people who by, by dint of their identity are innocent and celebrated. And there's some people who by dint of their identity are guilty and uh, need to be marginalized. It's a very ugly, grim world that I think is alien to, alien to the Judeo-Christian tradition. There's, uh, you wrote an article a few, I guess, a few months back on this issue of whether or not liberal democracy is something that is is worth uh, preserving. And that's that's a very real live debate and discussion amongst religious conservatives. Yes. Um, those who are, you know, very pro-Benedict option, who take a very dour view of Western liberal democracy, and those who would maybe be from the more Robbie George camp that see, you know, liberal democracy as something based in a Judeo-Christian understanding of, of human nature and human rights. I would love to, I mean, I, I know where you think on this issue, but I'd love to tease this out. I mean, why do you think those who are critical of liberal democracy are wrong? And and why do you think it's liberal democracy is something still worth preserving as Christians in the West? Uh, this is my favorite question, <laughs> Andrew, and <laughs> something I spend a lot of time thinking about. And I'm often in a, a weird no man's land where, uh, you know, on issues of gender identity, on expressive individualism, which I see as this kind of excessive emphasis on autonomy that that steps on where I see as being prerogatives of the church, of nation, and so on and so forth. I'm very much with some of these uh, social conservatives who, who, who are concerned about where these things are going. Sure. On the other hand, I'm not willing to say, I'm not prepared to say that um, liberal democracy as a whole is is a failed project and that the real debate, I mean, which you touched on, is you know whether what we're seeing right now with this explosion of gender nonsense and um, with the attacks on the traditional family, with the attacks on the church, uh, with explosion of euthanasia, assisted suicide, all these threats to dignity of life. The question is: Are those things a product, or a? a do they go to the essence of the vision of mm-hmm. the American founders and the sort of classical liberal uh, Anglo-American tradition, or are they a distortion of it? And I'm still not prepared to say that the, we should throw the whole the baby out with the bathwater. I, I see it as being these things are actually these things being, again, gender ideology, threats to traditional marriage and so forth are a distortion. Yeah of that classical liberal idea and not a product of the classical liberal idea. But sometimes, I mean, I have dark nights of the soul. Where <laughs> I know exactly I, what I you mean. I share those. One yeah. thing after another, you know, the latest, uh, 
you know, professor who is put through the sort of an inquisition for, for daring to question whether we should use transgender pronouns, their That's preferred right. made up pronouns. And I, I watched that and I think, man, yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe something's gone terribly wrong, but no, no, I'm not, I'm not yet prepared to, to go that way. And I'll tell you what, I was born and raised in Iran. So I was yeah. born in, a, in an unfree society. And as much as I, I deplore various things that are happening under the name of liberalism in the West, I know that unfree societies don't work, that they, yeah. that they, first of all, my own, for example, my own journey to Christianity and to Roman Catholicism is only possible in a free society. That's right. If I were in Iran, I would be persecuted for having, uh, having converted to, to Catholicism. So again, liberalism is, it often works in practice it, and no serious liberal. And again, every time I say liberal, please bear in mind, I mean classical sure, liberalism, sure. individual rights, pluralism, and so forth. No serious classical liberal says that it doesn't have problems, right? It yeah. has issues. Liberal societies have trouble respecting legitimate authority. Yeah. That's always a tension. Uh, they have, um, uh, they tend to breathe selfishness and atomization and alienation and lack of social solidarity and so forth. But, um, on the whole, the models that have been tried in modern conditions, all the alternatives have have not worked. So I, you know, I challenge some of my traditionalist Catholic friends who are prepared to part ways with democracy as a whole. What what model really are Would you proposing? You and, yeah, and they often don't have a clear answer to that. Yeah, I mean, I, just true confession. I, I I map onto this debate exactly where you are. You know, I have eyes wide open about the challenges facing. Western order. But at the same time, I don't know of a better solution. And to me, what this means is it's it's an opportunity for the church to practice the very best forms of liberal democracy, which is civility, an emphasis on innate human dignity, the, the emphasis on kind of associational pluralism in society, and that breeding the ability for individuals to live freely in collective communities that provide kind of a, a buffer between the individual and the state. And so I, I'm still with you on this, uh, and I do hope that the challenges we're living in, it allows the church to reflect upon our inheritance and would allow us to perhaps return to that in the very best sense of what liberal democracy stood for. I'm so glad. Can I make just yeah, one, no, one more Go point? I, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, I, I just think um, the church can – can transform democracy and liberal democracy from within. It can transform all political regimes Amen. from within because it's based on this radical account of, of all human beings as, as fallen and all of them having been uh, an, an invitation to redemption at, at Calvary. And it, it has this tremendous power. I just think that if you um, step away from democracy as a whole, which is the form still that most politics take, take shape in liberal democratic ways in, across the West. If you step away from it, you actually, these models that are completely alienated from liberal democracy, they don't have the option of transforming the, the regime from within. They've taken themselves uh, out of it. Another last point, which is why I'm still not prepared to part ways with it, is if the people who are concerned about liberal democracy as, are correct, that people are becoming more Ill, irreligious, more unchurched, more hostile to Judeo-Christian values and traditions, 
then I, I think it's actually a bad idea, even tactically speaking, to go toward a more illiberal order, because who's to say that the unfree regime that comes into play, mm-hmm. comes into being, is going to be friendly to Christianity in a context yeah. where people are becoming less and less religious and more kind of um, ardently secularist and materialist. So I think we should hold on to the freedoms that liberal democracy provides. We still, you know, when, when a nurse in Sweden is driven out of the profession because she has a conscientious objection to performing abortions, she can go to the courts, mm-hmm. she can go to the press, and in an illiberal uh, unfree context, you don't have those. And so just as a purely tactical matter, I think it's unwise to part ways with, with the, the liberal democratic form yet. Now, if we end up in, in, a, in a gulag for Christians, <laughs> <laughs> then I'll rethink this. <laughs> well, hopefully we can be bunkmates and have a great library. So it'll, it'll, be, it'll be okay. That would be amazing. Uh, um, so, so two last quick questions, and then we're going to get into some rapid fire questions is, you know, where do you see kind of the future of religious liberty headed? And then real quickly, like, you know, what, what writing projects are on your horizon? Let me start with the, the second question because I can answer very quickly. I'm writing a memoir about my journey to Christianity. I came, I came from, um, obviously, I was born in Iran to a nominally Muslim family, mm-hmm. but like many secular um, middle-class Iranians, we were basically completely secular and didn't have much religion. So I moved to Christianity essentially from atheism and through a long process of reflection and life experiences and reading. So that's, that's what's coming out. I'm writing it for Ignatius Press. And so we'll see when that comes out. Could be mid-2018 or uh, late 2018, early 2019 latest. So that's out of the way. Um, on the on religious liberty question, I see good movement in the U.S. Um, for all of the things that are problematic about the current administration, I think Obviously, the fact that we have the likes of Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court and yeah. all these judges on the on the appellate level, the fact that um, the Little Sisters of the Poor are getting a chance to um, to not be forced to, to pay for contraception, although now they've they've come under pressure in individual states. But the point is that they've scored some victories. But in Europe, it's it's dreadful. In Europe, it's dreadful, and I can't, I can't go into the whole kind of map the whole region, but on the whole. I would say that we're moving towards a direction where liberals and secularists are saying it's not enough for us to have um, gay marriage or uh, acceptance of transgender people and these alternative pronouns and so forth. It's not enough at a legal level. You personally, guy in in London or wherever, you have to internalize mm-hmm. this. I mean, some there was some of that in the U.S. too with forcing Christian bakers to bake cakes and so forth, but so much worse. So it's this idea of in order for me as a transgender person or a gay person or whatever to enjoy my full autonomy, it, I have to destroy your autonomy, you know, Orthodox Jew or Christian or yeah. Catholic or what have you. It's, it's no longer just about you remaining silent. It's that you have to give assent to what you no longer, to what you don't believe. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. It's so, chilling. Uh, yeah. Well, okay, so we're uh, nearing the end of our interview, and I have um, what I'm calling just kind of rapid-fire questions because uh, I want our listeners to get to know the individual as as the individual, not just as uh, a very talented, brilliant thinker and intellectual. So these are kind of designed to be uh, more fun in nature. So uh, what are your top three desert island movies? So it's uh, Blade Runner, uh, the original, 1979, okay. 1980. 
whatever it was. The movie Airplane, the comedy Airplane. Okay. And then the last one, which I think your audience would, would really uh, enjoy, although they may not have heard of it, is a, is a TV show, a Polish TV show around communist era called The Decalogue, which is a, each of them deals with one of the Ten Commandments, um, but awesome. in a very modern, modern context. So uh, I won't say more because it's, there's supposed to be rapid-fire questions, but I really suggest if you can find it, it's, uh, it's available on DVD, The Decalogue. Okay, no, I, that's that's really um, that sounds very fascinating. Uh, what are your top three desert island books? So I would I want to start with uh, with sacred scripture, but I'll pick two books just for their sheer beauty: Genesis and St. John's Gospel. Um, and then the novel. So that's two, and then the the novel War and Peace, which is the greatest secular book ever written. Okay, um, I, I should, you know the greatest book that's not sacred scripture. Sure, sure. Okay, what's a recent purchase you've made that has really kind of revolutionized uh, an area of your life? Oh man, this is a sore point. I recently lost my uh, backpack that had my laptop, so yeah, I will be purchasing. I hope a, a new laptop soon. <laughs> good, good. Who's your favorite Christian writer, either living or or deceased? Uh, St. Augustine, um, and uh, obviously when I was received into the church, he was my patron saint, so uh, confessions mainly. Uh, any particular hobbies? No, I just work. Okay, <laughs> and you're a dad and a husband, so the answer is no. Yes, yes. I, I share that, I share that, uh, that, that situation in life as well. Um, okay, if you could go anywhere through time, where would you go and visit? Oh, I would say either the, the apostolic age or, or just the early early Christian age. Okay. And if you could meet anyone through history, who would it be? You can't, uh, you can't say Christ. You can't say Christ. No, yeah, I figured I couldn't. I, I figured I couldn't. Um, probably Tolstoy then. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Last question. If you won $10 million in the lottery and you had 30 seconds to decide what to do with it, what would you do? I'm going to be cheesy. I would buy a nicer house for my mom and that kind of oh, thing. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> very altruistic and loving. What a yeah, good sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, a, and a, some sort of sports, uh, sports car. Okay. Yeah. That's very, very, very honest, that last part as well, yes, for sure. Yes. Well, Sarab, um, sincerely, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know uh, you're in New York City, correct? Yes. Okay. So I know it's very lively up there at all times of the day. And I know you're busy. You are married and you have one son, correct? Yes. He's seven months old. That's wonderful. Wonderful. We want to thank you for joining us on this issue of Counter Moves. And I want to encourage listeners to really read anything that Sarab Amari writes from commentary. Check him out on Twitter and just pay attention to this relatively young gentleman's work because he is someone who I myself benefit greatly from and we at the ERLC uh, are constantly talking about uh, ideas that he's uh, dealing with in written form and we're very grateful for the gifts God has given you and we're really grateful that you could take time to talk with us today, Sarab. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.